Good morning. If you're new or visiting, my name's Simon. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to have you with us. We're going to open up God's Word together now, uh, look in more detail at that passage we just heard read out. Let's open in prayer as we come to that task together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this amazing book so that we might know you, our maker. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you as we spend time in your text now. Change our hearts, teach us your ways, may we gain wisdom from you. Amen. Let me just check that. Is, is the mic coming, coming through okay? Have I got too much compression on? I've got two of our sound guys on it. I'll leave them to it. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely little children's story called uh, Tiny T-Rex and the Impossible Hug. Um, it ended up in my house at some stage. Um, if you were the one that gave, us to it, gave it to us, thank you. I often don't know how they end up in my house. Um, it's a lovely little story uh, about Tiny... Uh, the T-Rex, who, who sees his friend, Pointy, uh, feeling sad. And, and Tiny can think of uh, a few good things to help a friend feel better. Uh, cake, smiles, tacos, jokes, and hugs. Uh, I think a, a pretty good list that Tiny's got going there. Uh, but there's a problem on the hug front. Uh, tiny T-Rex has tiny arms. Uh, and that makes hugging a challenge, especially when you're wanting to hug a friend as large as Pointy. So, Tiny sets out on a mission, persevering, uh, to try to learn to hug with tiny arms. And he asks various family members for help and, and, and ideas on how to do this, and, and he ends up practicing on all kinds of things. He practices on balls, on flowers, on ice cream cones, and uh, uh, eventually uh, even practicing on... The suspense is killing you. <laughs> on a cactus. <laughs> uh, but that may have been a mistake. Um, Finally, at last, point, uh, Tiny finds his is ready to find his friend, Pointy, and give him a hug. And so, uh, Tiny explains, as he finds him, uh, he explains that he's been practicing and wants to do his very best to give him his very best hug because he's his very best friend. And Pointy, well, he ends up smiling. Uh, and he reckons it's the best hug he's ever got. Uh, sometimes you just need a hug, don't you? Sometimes we just need a hug. God, God's made us as physical and spiritual beings, and sometimes a good hug from a loved one can make a big difference, can't it? Uh, like, a, like a toddler with an ouchie being scooped up into the arms of their mum, and quickly the, the crying comes to an end. Closeness to the right someone can make a lot of things better. Being close to someone who we know is safe, who, who loves us, who, who cares for us, 
That closeness is so good. And the Bible shows us that we were made to be close to our maker. And that by default, this world and our lives are messed up by sin. And by default, we are not close. It's messed up by sin. And the results are dreadful. And the consequences, eternal. And yet closeness to our creator God is what we all as human beings so desperately need. It's what we're made for. And this passage we're looking at as we continue our journey through Mark's gospel this term. So we come to Mark chapter 7. And this passage is really, it's actually all about closeness to God. It's inviting us as the readers to ask the question, can that closeness come through some sort of of cleaning or washing of ourselves. Or or to put it another way, uh, is cleanliness next to godliness? Uh, We're going to see three things. Uh, We're going to see that closeness to God uh, doesn't come through religious ritual. That closeness to God requires heart change. And that closeness to God, uh, you guessed it, it comes through Jesus. So firstly, closeness to God uh, doesn't come through religious ritual. Have a look with me at uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. I would love you to have a Bible or device open or feel free to look up on the screen. And the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. There's an air of, of tension and we suspect hostility so far in the story as the These Pharisees have come from the capital, Jerusalem, and have come down in such a number as to gather around to hem Jesus in. And they were not worried about hand-washing for hygiene reasons. No, it's something else. And helpfully, Mark's one of those writers that assumes that uh, all of his readers don't necessarily know all of the Jewish rituals. That's that's helpful for us. Um, Nor do we understand uh, the background or the practices of uh, of Jewish people. And so uh, Mark helpfully includes an explanatory note in verse 3. Have a look. Uh, The Pharisees and all the Jews uh, do not eat unless their hands are ceremonially, uh, uh, unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat uh, unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? The Pharisees, they had a right concern. and They they had a right desire to make the laws of God accessible to the people. If we're to look back at Leviticus chapter 19, early on in the story of the Bible, in verse 1 we read, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he calls them to be holy. To, to be holy, it's to be, to be unique, to be set apart, to be other. And God is the definition of holiness. God is the definition of holiness. There is, there is none like him in power, in perfection, or in moral goodness. There is none like him. 
And he called his Old Testament people to be different from the outside influences around them. And so he said, be holy, because I'm holy, you ought to be my set-apart people. You ought to look different. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they actually had a right desire to obey God's commands and to help the people to obey God's command. And so couple that with a few books further into the story of the Bible. Psalm 24, verse 3, the psalmist reflects, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in, in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? The, the psalmist rightly ponders, who, who's holy enough to be in God's presence? Who, who, who can do that? And the Old Testament law, they, they provided hand washing and other ritual cleansings for the priests in the temple in particular. And it's for the priests. And this ceremonial washing showed that they weren't cavalier and waltzing into the presence of God at the temple. And these priests had these ways and these means to come close to God and his presence in the temple. But, but what about the common Israelite, the, the average Jew? What were they to do? Well, the Pharisees sought to help the people to be near to God with rituals that were attainable and achievable. Now, albeit not necessarily easy, though, arduous, but attainable, achievable. They saw the temple as the focal point of God's holiness and with degrees of holiness rippling out from it into Jerusalem and the surrounding Israel. And so they applied those, those temple cleaning laws that the priests were meant to do uh, to the people living surrounding the temple, God's, God's people rippling out from Jerusalem. And what are these laws? Well, they're referred now to, in Jesus' time, as the tradition of the elders. They're, they're traditional laws that sought to bring the people close to God uh, based off the less precise Old Testament laws. They were filling in the gaps. Uh, you, you could say it was the, the application section of their Bible studies. And, and then they handed it down from generation to generation. And here Jesus seems to be clearly allowing his disciples to break these important rules. And this is significant. Because Jesus is threatening core Jewish identity markers. Uncleanness symbolizes broken fellowship with God. To them, Jesus was religiously incorrect and his casual attitude towards such things threatened the Pharisees' vision of a smoothly running, holy community. And so they came with a tone of attack. And we can have our, our own identity markers, can't we? Our, our own lines in the sand as to what's acceptable before a holy God. And if we're honest, we use them to judge how legitimate we think somebody else's faith is. Now, we, we don't ceremonially wash our hands, but we have practice purity line markers set. It wasn't that long ago that there would be no hats allowed in church. Uh, or that if a our child was ever uh, found running. Well, that, that mustn't be so in a church. 
Um, or if I got up to preach today in shorts and bare feet, I suspect that some of you would say to me that that's inappropriate. And we have opinions on, uh, do we always have to work our way through whole books of the Bible? Or can we preach topical sermons regularly? And we have reasons for all these things. Uh, we, we have doctrine purity markers. We, we take stances on, on how old the earth is, on the, the specific details of when and how Jesus comes back, on women having, having equal or different roles in church, the, the when and the how of baptism, uh, the way decisions in a church should be made, or all these things. Uh, we, we have as, as uh, markers, purity line markers. And as a church, as I reflect back over recent years, I think as a church we're getting better at talking about these things as, yes, important, but not the big thing. Not the big thing. But it's good for you to ask yourself, and it's good for me to ask myself, can I get so hung up on a particular one of those things? You fill in the blank as to what it might be for you. Can I get so hung up on it that, that I look like a Pharisee standing before a holy God, creator of the universe, stepped down into the world in human flesh, here to bring about salvation to the whole world, and I want to argue about my version of hand hygiene. It's petty when you think about what the Pharisees are doing. There's a warning here for us to watch out on being absorbed by te technicalities or, or theological minutiae that we ignore the weightier matters that Jesus told us in Matthew 23 of justice, mercy, or love and grace. And so let's come back to Jesus' response to the Pharisees' misguided concern. He replies in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Whew. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Can you imagine some of those words ever being said about BBC? May it never be so. A hypocrite. And the word carries the idea of, of an actor, a, a pretender, that the Pharisees have a mask on. They're playing a role. Uh, the religious leaders, they, they, they think that they've come near to God, but in reality their hearts are far from God. Now, this was a tense scene from the beginning, but now it's turning hostile. What's going on here? Looks like Jesus goes on the attack. Well, they were attempting to shame Jesus, the teacher, by questioning his disciples. And to shame Jesus in an in a honor-shame culture would be to expose that he doesn't actually really have the authority on religious matters. The Pharisees do. And so they're attacking. 
and he pushes back. Jesus knew that they pretended, they acted like being near God, but their hearts sang a different tune, a different tune to God's heart of love and compassion for the lost and needy. What tune does your heart sing? Jesus has called them out. They they played a public role of being devoted to God, but their attitudes and their actions actually demonstrated that they didn't really know God at all. And Jesus goes on. He's not not finished yet. Verse 9. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses, in the scriptures, in God's word, said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, Mark gives us this explanatory note on that word again, then you say they no longer let them do anything, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. And verse 13, thus, you Pharisees, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. He picked on just one. Apparently there were many more. Now what's Jesus talking about here? Jewish practice had, had again, and the tradition of the elders had developed this idea that, that a, a person could choose to make a, a sacred vow to devote something to the Lord, whether it's, it's money or possessions or property, and, and devote it to the Lord. And we could go into a lot more detail around that, but, but in, in short, this devoted thing uh, became Corbin, that means set apart for God. In short, it wasn't a bad idea. But the problem was that when complex scenarios to do with looking after parents, as they were meant to do, came up, uh, the Pharisees uh, gave precedence to the Corbin vow over the the heart of God's law. On the surface, they seemed wise and highly spiritual, but Jesus' charge is that they are nullifying God's word by their tradition. And the sadness of of the Pharisees, is that they began as a group of people very much devoted to obeying God, very much devoted to God, but their hearts were closed off from God's grace. And so their often right theology and and their right desire for holiness ended up in in hypocrisy and in, in pride and in distance from God. So we see that closeness to God does not come through religious ritual. And so don't attempt to draw near to God through religious ritual. Don't don't attempt to bring yourself close to God, to, to make amends between him and you because of your sin. Don't attempt to fix that by coming to church or by ticking off a Bible reading plan or by praying a certain amount of times a day or a week. All good things, but none of them the things that in and of themselves make us clean before God. In Mark's unfolding story of who Jesus is and what he came to do, he's setting us up to look for a better way 
to draw close. And as usual, the answer is in Jesus and his grace. Uh, I, I have an uh, aquarium tank at home, just a small little one that has um, cherry shrimp in them, uh, like, like uh, the picture of these ones. They're usually about one to two centimetres long. They're very small, but I think they're super cool. Um, one of the things that, about them uh, that I think is super cool is they have an exoskeleton. Uh, cool, huh? Exoskeleton. Run with me for a second. Uh, it's that hard external shell around them, and exoskeletons are very useful things because they're, they're strong, they're tough, and they protect from danger. They protect from danger. Uh, but from time to time, an exoskeleton must also be shit because it can be restrictive. And, and so shrimp molt many times as they grow. Uh, and so it looks like this. It's very cool. Uh, that's not a shrimp. That's just their exoskeleton that after it's been shed. But occasionally, a, a shrimp will get stuck trying to, to get free of an exoskeleton that it, it needs to outgrow. It gets stuck and it dies. And our, our church traditions, our Christian traditions, are similar to exoskeletons. Traditions protect, but they can also kill. Traditions are very useful things. They create a protection for us from danger, from, the, from, from danger uh, both in, in error in belief or the danger of error in living. Traditions are the, the necessary habits routines, ways of doing things that emerge from our attempt to apply God's scripture in community. And sometimes these traditions are, are handed down from previous generations and serve us well. Other times our traditions are relatively modern and serve us well. Sometimes our tradition is two weeks old, we just started doing something, but it's serving us well. It's the way we do things in applying God's word in our context. So the concept of tradition it is not bad, but it can be dangerous. Our traditions are dangerous because they do need to be shared from time to time. A particular tradition will serve us very well for, for a season. But there will come a time where that same tradition that served well will hold us back the message and the mission always stay the same. But the context and the culture changes. And as that happens, so too should our traditions change. Once upon a time, did you know everyone used to have to stand in church? Uh, having a chair, that would be a liberal thing to do, having a chair in church, my goodness. And so everyone stood. And in time, the tradition shifted. And, uh, and we got big wooden benches called pews, luxury, luxury. Uh, but let's be honest, they're hard to move, uh, OH&S and back issues and all that kind of thing. They're also just very uncomfortable, especially if you have the back issues. Uh, and so we upgraded to chairs. And uh, now we've just got, as of today, some of you are sitting in uh, the freshest, newest chairs. We have 10 new comfy chairs today, which is nice to have, particularly for those that it really makes a difference for. And so the tradition of what we do with seating or standing in church 
changes over time, and, and rightly so. I reckon it would be hard to get a bunch of people in, in Busselton 2024 to come to church and stand for two hours in this, uh, for, for an hour and a half in this space um, with no chairs available. If we don't occasionally shed various traditions, we will not be able to grow, and eventually faith will die. I have seen, and you can probably picture it too, so many old church buildings sold as restaurants, shops, even houses, never again to have a lively, vibrant, worshipping gathering of God's people meeting in that space. It's tragedy. Let's not get stuck by our protective exoskeleton. Uh, an author with a great name uh, wrote a book, The Vindication of Tradition, Jaroslav Palikin, Palikin, I don't know quite how to say it, like I said, has a great name. He had a good line, uh, obviously an advocate for tradition, but he also said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And so he says, tradition is good, it's, it's helpful, it's the, the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism, which I take to mean when we lose the ability to shed various traditions that need to be shared, be, because traditions become our controlling guide, well, that's the dead faith of the living. Have we substituted human traditions for the word of God and even insisted that others do the same? Let us be careful of that danger. But well, to think about it another way, church for, for my grandkids one day, and for those that they're trying to win for Christ, it does not need to look like, nor should it look like, what I prefer church to look like now. It should look different. Let's not get stuck. Now, picking up speed as we continue into the second half of the passage. The second thing to note, closeness to God requires heart change. Have a look at verse 14 with me. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that, that, that defiles them. And so Jesus now, notice the, the change in audience. He, he calls the crowd to come and listen. You know, these, these teachers uh, had been leading people astray and it's time for a wider correction. Imagine the Pharisees, they were around him huddled, wanting religious debate and he looks up over their heads and projects out past them. Listen to me, everyone. Understand. He has something important to tell us. And he wants to make clear that sin is not the result of an, an environment or influences or access or ability to get away with something. No sin comes from the human heart. Mark's inviting us to recognise how short-sighted short to think that that mechanical obedience was what pleased the living God. And God measures holiness at beginning with the heart. And so let's not have a superficial, shallow view of sin. 
Sin cannot be dealt with by mere behavior modification. Um, hand up who's uh, ever watched online one of those satisfying cleaning videos. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? Got a, got a few people. So it's probably more of a younger generation thing. Let me explain it. They're, prob- they're a bit weird when you think about it. Uh, satisfying cleaning videos. It might be a, a muddy car. Uh, it might be a, a mouldy car interior, rugs, a high-pressure hose driveway, overgrown gardens or lawns, putrid green swimming pools, all these kind of things. And, and the video is a, a time loop, a, a sped-up video of someone cleaning something that's really, really dirty, and then it looks amazing by the end. Now, Catherine re- recently watched one of these and, and showed it to me. It was an epic rug cleaning video. And let me tell you, it was satisfying to watch. Uh, this thing went from covered in, caked in mud, to this original, beautiful, light grey pattern, and it was a shaggy rug too, that. Now, the video worked in my favour, because apparently it was inspiring. And I now have in my house three very clean rugs. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Now, what these videos do tend to do, though, I think, for me, is they build a sense of false hope. Uh, not so much that Kath would clean more things, uh, but that, that they give me this false hope that you can clean anything and make it look amazing. But sometimes I go to clean something in my house and it just won't clean. Now, maybe it's damaged and you can't clean what's broken, or I damage it trying to clean it. Uh, sometimes you just need to use the right approach, the, the right chemical or the right method. I tell you, I am done with the cheap sprays for oven cleaning. You buy the quality stuff, you spray it, you wait a couple of hours, you come back and it wipes straight off. It's fantastic. Uh, just watch out, your skin will also wipe straight off um, <laughs> if you don't use the gloves. Uh, some things just can't be cleaned without the proper tools. And there is only one way to clean the human heart. It's Jesus. Our tradition, our religious rituals, they can't clean what Jesus' blood cleans for us. Have a look with me up on the screen at Hebrews chapter 10, a wonderful little verse, verse 19. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. Only Jesus can bring us near to God. No amount of religious tradition can do it. And we need to trust Jesus to wash our hearts and transform our lives. What we've seen in the Pharisees is it's classic legalism. Legalism, be close to God through, through the merit of your own works, says legalism. And, and it, it's an insidious distraction for us. It subtly creeps into our thinking. We, we live and breathe a culture of, of meritocracy. Of, we're, we're rewarded 
according to our talent, our effort, our, our merit. And this way of thinking creeps into our faith journey so easily. We, we can get so distracted thinking uh, that we're focusing on, on saying the right things and doing the right things, but, but we're, we're subtly fixating on, on these things that are actually not going to draw us near to God. Legalism is the wrong solution to the wrong problem. It's, it's mixing merit and mercy. And let me say, legalism creates an ugly community too, doesn't it? It doesn't create an attractive community of grace and truth. Because where there is legalism, tribalism is close behind. Because the rules become the boundaries of who is in and who is not, and that breeds pride. Jesus didn't call us to this sort of cautious protection of our religious purity, but instead to be communities of grace and truth, wanting his heart of love and kindness to ooze out of us. The truth is that our Christian traditions and practices, they, they can accidentally build in us, if we're not careful, false confidence in our own godliness. They can obscure grace in our mindsets and restrict our love of others. One Bible commenter warned, the church needs reminding again that it can be correct in outward form and theology but not have the spirit of Christ. Goodness comes from inner purity, a life transformed within by Jesus. And so the final thing we see is that closeness to God comes through Jesus. Have a look at verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Parable? Did, did I miss something? Did Jesus tell a story? Did anyone say it? it in, interesting, interesting choice of words. It, it, it was as if Jesus spoke in, such in a confusing, veiled parable. Was it that his disciples, like so many of his contemporaries, had, had been too easily impressed by the skin-deep religion of the Pharisees? That they really don't get it. And so he says to them, and I think with a tone of sadness, are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, it goes into their stomach and then out of their body. And my comments in saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. What Jesus is saying is not dissimilar to our English quip, in one end and out the other. He's saying washing, food, these kind of things, that they, they can't affect your heart, they can't affect the core of our being. No, they just... They just go through our digestive system and then, well, anyway, probably enough data. You get the idea of what happens next. Um, interestingly, Mark includes a note reflecting back later on Jesus' words here. And, and he comments, this was Jesus declaring all foods permissible for the Christian to eat. In opposition to legalism, there is freedom of conscience implied in God's words and Jesus' words. 
we go on in verse 20. Jesus went on. What, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The problem is the heart. Not our anatomical heart, but, but the centre of our being that, that, that pumps sin throughout all the areas of our lives. Our heart is the core of our, our motivation, our deliberation, our intention. And Jesus points out that nasty stuff comes out of it. Jesus lists 12 sins. Firstly, six behaviours that have obvious and devastating effect on those around us. And then he lists six attitudes or mindsets that are both hard to detect in yourself at times and certainly hard to fix. Religious tradition can't fix that list of things lurking around in my heart or in your heart. It just can't. So our only hope to be close to our Creator is Jesus changing our hearts. Now as a Christian, it's true. If you trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, it is true that you are washed by Jesus' blood and therefore you are brought near to God. You are near to God. You are close to God. That is reality. But our experience is also so often an experience still of separation and of distance from God because of our own ongoing sin in our lives. How do we be close to God in our every day with this tension at play? And it, it's not by ritual, but it is still by obedience. I was in a conversation recently uh, discussing the, the use of those dog collars that, that give an electric shock if the dog oversteps the boundary line. So you put the boundary line around and uh, I know there's different opinions on, on the use of those things and I'm not a dog owner, so to me they look like and seem like uh, quite, quite an effective uh, and, uh, way to deal with the problem and much cheaper than a fence as well. Um, and so the dog steps over the line, gets a shock, learns not to do it. And they figure it out pretty quickly and they actually don't get shocked much because it happens once or twice and they go, okay, that's where the boundary line is and, and I'm not free to go past there and I'll, I'll stay here. And then the interesting thing is that you can turn the collar off. You turn the collar off and the dog still will not go past that line. They're now free, but they're not free. There's an incongruency between reality and experience. And this is the case for us with God, isn't it? We are washed clean. We are brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. Sin no longer separates us. But we do still sin. And when we do, it causes us the, the experience of distance from God. Uh, one author by the name of Ed Welch writes, Sin separates, even after we are made holy. When we turn from sin, we turn back to the light and life, and we experience fellowship with, with clear conscience. 
God's laws are instructions about how to be in relationship with him. And when followed, they protect the relationship and they move it toward greater intimacy. That's really helpful clarity, I think. So, so we do not draw close to God in ritual, but we do still seek to be obedient to God's word because we want, now as he's changed and transformed people, we want to experience greater intimacy with our God. And so there's a tension as, as we seek to uh, apply these verses. Uh, we get it wrong if we end up saying, okay, we've, we've talked a bit around the anti-law grace stuff, great. Now, uh, now that that's out of the way, uh, on to the, the works stuff next. No, we never move on from the gospel of grace. But we do have a God-given desire to experience greater intimacy with our Creator. And our sin causes disruption to that. So what do we do about it? For some of us, we might actually need to take the Pharisees' concern a little bit more seriously. Holiness. God made us to live a certain way, and that way is, is best for us. He's our maker. He knows how this world works. Living his ways is good for us. And so this list that Jesus gives, it, it acts as like a warning light. Uh, when, when one of those stands out and you notice, you think, I hope the preacher doesn't focus too long on that particular one in the list. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it acts like a warning light. Uh, they are, that one's the thing that points for us to the spot in our heart that needs us to apply the gospel deeper. And as we seek to keep applying the gospel deeper still, and then we can strive for godliness outflowing, following that. Um, Paul, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he tells us, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. And so he calls us to, to live a certain way. Yes, don't, don't look like the world. Be holy, in other words. But he says, be transformed. Not transform yourself. Be transformed. Who does the transforming? God does the work. Jesus does the work. And then, then we practice and we grow in holiness. So in our attempts at obedience... Trusting in God's grace as we fail along the way, in our attempts, bit by bit, we enjoy a greater intensity of closeness with our Creator, with our loving Heavenly Father. Only Jesus can bring us near to God. No amount of religious ritual can do it. We need to trust Jesus. Trust Him to wash our hearts, to transform our lives. Jesus came into this world, he came near because we can't come near to him. He, he cleansed us because we can't clean ourselves. The Pharisees' problem was that they mixed mercy and merit. They identified the wrong problem and they became legalists and they carried the burden of, of regulations in an attempt to be close to God. Let's not make the same mistake, but instead, 
May we choose daily to take up the light and easy yoke of Jesus' freedom. Let me pray. Lord God, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we say thank you. Lord, please help us to stand firm in that freedom. Help us to not let ourselves again be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Lord Jesus, help us to trust you to wash our hearts and to transform our lives. And as you do that, help us to practice and grow in godliness this week. Amen. Thank